You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I invite you to turn in, a, in your Bible, if you have one with you, to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, a couple other options. There's the, the text is in your, in your order of worship, in your bulletin. There are also about five Bibles on the back table. If you don't own a Bible, I'd, I'd encourage you to go grab one right now. Just get up, go grab one. No big deal. That one's yours. It's our gift to you. Love for you to have that. Okay. Um, but anyway, you can. I'd encourage you to have the text in front of you as we go through it. Now, the Bible teaches and Christians believe that God created everything. Right? Not only did He create everything, but He called everything good. The Bible also teaches, and Christians also believe, that because of what we call sin, you and I are prone to take very good things and we make those things ultimate. What that means is that we, we, um, we seek to order our lives around those things. Order our lives, to, to place our hopes in it, whether we're talking about relationships, sex, power, control, money, whatever. Okay? And this book that we're going through currently, Ecclesiastes, exposes that. And shows that the attempts to do that ultimately lead to meaninglessness. Like, it, it can't happen. It doesn't pan out. This morning, though, we engage in an issue that, for us, in this culture especially, is nearly invisible. I say that because I doubt that any of us would consider that we have a problem with making money ultimate. But given the Bible's consistent warnings in that direction and some indicators in our culture, it seems likely to me that we all struggle in some way to draw meaning from our money. But our teacher this morning uh, in, the, in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, shows us that all we're going to find there in doing that is meaninglessness. As is our habit here in this church, if you stand in honor of God's word as we read, I'll be reading chapter 5, verses 8 to 20. Friends, this is God's word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and a violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched over by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over him. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also meaningless. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? 
Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joys of his heart. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're asking nothing less this morning than that you work in our hearts. Everyone knows in this place the words of people can bounce off of, uh, bounce off of us and can mean nothing. For there to be change here in this place, it's got to be because your word is speaking by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be moving even now. Soften our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Let Christ and his cross come forward and the one who speaks fall to the, fall to the, to the wayside, Lord, because you, you are the one who changes us. And so we ask that you would do that even now in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. I'm sure some of you have heard this before, but it bears repeating. Um, Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan tells the story that in his 30-plus years in the pastorate, he has had people come and confess to him numerous different struggles and sins. In fact, he would say he's probably heard it all, except one. Except one. No one has ever come to him and claimed to be greedy. Now, I haven't been in the pastorate anywhere near as long as Tim, but my almost 10 years of experience would say the same. I've had people come to me and confess adultery. I've had people come and confess lying, abusing their spouse, pornography addictions, drinking addictions, drug addictions, you name it. But I have never had anyone come to me and say, help me, pastor, I'm struggling with greed. Now, what are the chances that that is an accurate representation of us? What are the chances that no one that I've ministered to in the last 10 years struggles with greed? How about that no one that Tim Keller has ministered to in the last 30 plus years in both Virginia and in Manhattan, New York, struggles with greed? Not real good, are they? More likely than that are two possibilities that I think are likely and and probable at the same time. One, greed is culturally acceptable to us. Now, sure, not in the, like, Michael Douglas Wall Street kind of greed. You know what I mean? Like that movie, Wall Street, greed is good. We all, not not that kind of greed. Um, But something probably a little less grand, but nevertheless greedy, uh, certainly. And then number two... You know, one, greed that cult- is culturally acceptable. Two, greed is something that we are simply unable to see. We literally just cannot see it. Can't see it in ourselves. We can't see it in others. But this morning, our passage unmasks this issue and our desire to see money hold up our hopes. And so we're going to look at this in two ways this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin, as always. The way we're going to look at this is, is first, we're going to look at, at of, greed, of gain and greed, and then finally, of grace and gifts, okay? Now... What I want to do as we get into this is I want to walk through this passage in a fairly routine way. Um, so nothing fancy this morning. But I want to start with lacking satisfaction. Okay? Now the first two verses set the stage for the conversation, right? 
He sets us up seeing the oppression of the poor. He's talking about those who are looking out and seeing the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. Now, I have to say one thing about this. Well, I have to say two things about this. I don't have time to argue this, unfortunately, because it's kind of peripheral to our passage. We'll talk about this a little bit next week. Um, But I'll just need to simply state them instead of argue them. But, But it's this. The Bible assumes that care for the poor is not an issue of mercy, but of justice. That it's not an issue of generosity, as it is an issue of fairness. Now, you may not like that, but take it to the book, because that's what the Bible says consistently. Okay? The second thing I would state is that the Bible's position on this pushes against all of our political options in this country. Okay? It pushes against both of the major political options of this country and cannot, cannot be reductionistically contained in one or the other. Okay? You with me? All right. The context for this passage is the economic positions of both the poor and the rich. And we're just gonna, I'm just going to lay that out there. Next week, if that interests you, next week we're talking about the meaninglessness of privilege. I'd invite you back. Okay? We'll, we'll talk about that a little more, okay? But that's, that's what we need to say setting this up. Now, the reason that he talks about the poor and the rich comes out as we look at lacking satisfaction. Look down at verses 10 to 12. The teacher says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also meaningless, okay? Now, this, this is almost so clear, hardly needs a description, right? What this dude is saying is that it's never enough. You can never have enough. The person he's describing here is the very person that you and I think of when we think of greed. You and I think of greed, we think of the person who is like ravenous, right? The person who wants more and more and can't seem to ever get enough. And now, here's the problem when we think about that person. We automatically think, all of us, no matter what stage of life, socioeconomic bracket, bank book status, we all think that that person obviously has more money than I do. Right? I don't care whether you're making, making minimum wage here this morning or you're, you're bringing in, you know, uh, six figures. We all think that this person who's never satisfied with enough, that's obviously talking about the dude who makes that much money, which is always further up than we are. Okay? That is the insidiousness of this issue. And this is what he means when he says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. What he's saying is, if you are looking to money to satisfy you, you can never find enough of it to do that, whether you have a lot of it or a little of it. It's, it's a vacuum. And nature abhors a vacuum, right? It's going to fill it. It's like, um, I know how to fix my weight problem. I will buy a bigger belt, Right? We always fill out what's there. Okay? And so that's what he's talking about. The issue is the, the problem that money cannot satisfy, not how much you have in your bankroll. All right? Now, some of us right now are starting to drift to other things. We're starting to drift to, like, what am I having for lunch? Who's got the edge tonight in the Super Bowl? If I hear that phrase one more time, I'm going to puke. Like, okay? No one knows. Okay? It's going to be a great game. Anyway. The reason why we're drifting is because we don't think this is us. We are convinced that whatever greed is, it's not talking about me. It's talking about someone that we have in our mind or some image that we have in our mind. Okay? But he is not talking just about the dude who sits with his huge bankroll and spends and spends. 
He's also talking about the dude who sits with a little bankroll, who can't spend and spend, but thinks all the time about what he could be spending and spending. What, they, what he will be spending when he gets more. You and I, like, look, we don't think we have enough money to deal with greed. To deal with placing our hope in our money. But that is not true. If you're here this morning and you think that you will finally and fully be satisfied. If you just made a little bit more money. Had a little bit more margin in your budget. Right? Just had a few more dollars. If you could just buy this or this or, or that house upgrade, or that better car, or that new tech toy. Can I tell you, the Word of God is telling you this morning that you are greedy. That you are hoping money will satisfy you. But the, re- the reality is, it will never be enough. And this is what leads into verse 12. He says this, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, so let me give this context. In the ancient world, when he's talking about a laborer, he's talking about a day laborer, right? And the way a day laborer would work, he'd go out somewhere with all the rest of them, they'd all stand at the corner, and then um, a guy, a landowner, would come out and say, okay, I need this many helpers, they'd go out, and when they got done with their work, he'd give them money, and that was what they needed for the day. He'd take it from there, and go buy food for his family, and whatever, and maybe he'd have a little leftover, more than likely... It was daily sustenance, okay? When Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, that's what he's talking about. That was the existence of most of the folks who originally heard Jesus, okay? In an agrarian society, that's what's going on. They go to work, they get paid that day, and the wage was what they lived on that day, okay? You with me? Their existence, in other words, was day to day. Now, many of us in this room cannot fathom that, but for some of us, that is our reality, Okay? Now, in addition, unlike most of us, in, in the society in which this text was written in, there was no such thing as upward mobility. We take that for granted. But there was no such thing as, as increasing your station. If you were a day laborer, you would always be a day laborer, and more than likely, so would your kids and their kids. This is just the way things work. That meant that you never had the expectation, listen to me, You never had the expectation that things could get better for you. It wasn't just that things weren't likely to. It's that you you never even thought, well, I could work my way out of this, get into upper management, two-car garage. No, it, it didn't work that way. There was no, in other words, there was no such thing for them as the middle class dream, right? And because of this, he sleeps fine. He sleeps fine because he isn't worried about getting ahead. The rich dude, on the other hand, he can't sleep because he needs more and more to satisfy him. He has the expectation that he should be able to get more. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we are that guy. Not the day laborer who's like, okay, well, I got what I needed for a day and I'm going back to bed. We think we can get more and we believe we must. And so we are never satisfied. But that's only part of the problem. Look down at verses 13 to 17 because we see what's lacking gain as well. The teacher calls this a grievous evil. In other words, a wrong. Like something wrong about this. Uh, that there's a guy who keeps all his wealth. In other words, he stores it up, but he can't take it with him. Now let's not miss this. This is a different sort of greed 
but it is still greed. Still looking for money to hold our hopes. If the last dude was all about spending and couldn't get any satisfaction, this dude is all about saving and can't get any safety. You see that? This guy is frugal. He's wise. But in in verse 14, something happens outside of his control. He ends up losing it all. The teacher says he toils for the wind. The image being of someone who's just chasing, trying to grasp onto something that's so vaporous. You can't grasp it. Okay? Now let me say this again and, and say it clearly. We tend to think that someone who is placing their hope in their money is seen by the fact that they both have a lot of money and they spend a lot of money. But what the last few verses show us is that both the guy who spends a lot and the guy who saves a lot, or, or better, the guy who spends a lot or the guy who just thinks about spending a lot and the guy who saves a lot, all of these verses are talking about the same thing, that in the end it won't matter. Verse 16 literally says there is no gain. In other words, there is no profit. That's an economic term in the original. It means that you're getting nothing out of it. Nothing. The teacher is telling us that looking to money to hold your hopes can look like both spending and saving. Thinking about spending and looking to your savings to keep you safe. The issue is both behavior, but even more so, it's what's going on in the heart. Okay? And verse 17 sums up the state of this guy by asking, by saying that he eats in darkness. It is, I love the ESV says he's like full of vexation. Who uses that word? It means he's really stressed, okay? He's stressed, he's sick, he's angry. Why? I've said it a couple times, so let me flesh it out. Many of us look to money to satisfy us. That is true. But my guess would be in this room, more of us look to it to keep us safe. We think if we have a problem, we can fix it as long as we got enough bankroll, right? Like this is especially true of us. If, if, you were, if you were in middle class America, this is true of you, more than likely. Think about it. How many of us in this room think that the answer to poverty is money? Right? How does that work when someone wins the lottery? Yeah, exactly. Okay? We look to our money to provide a buffer between us and the world. And we do this because we have a nagging sense that we have to do something to protect ourselves. Interestingly, um, the Hebrew word that most often, which is what the Old Testament was originally written in, that, that word that's most often translated as greed bears with it an understanding that it is an expression of autonomy of isolation. Like, we know that money can make us independent. We know that it keeps us from needing others, from not needing anybody. It keeps us, in other words, safe. The problem is, is that as the teacher shows us, it cannot keep us from the one thing that is common to everyone. Death. In the end, it doesn't help at all. And that leads us to the conclusion of the teacher in verses 18 to 20 when he talks about the gift of contentment. Because he basically says this, what is good and fitting, which that word fitting, we don't use fitting, the, the, the same word means beautiful, okay? It's both good and beautiful. It's like, right. What is good and, and beautiful is to enjoy what you're given. But did you notice that last word? Given? You see that? It's very important. Verse 19 is clear on this. Like, God is the one who gives wealth and possessions. 
Now, what I just said is hard for us, right? Especially because of our American upwardly mobile autonomy-centered culture. But the Bible seems to be clear that it is God who provides for us. Proverbs 127, which is, if you just uh, take a little, little jaunt to the left of Ecclesiastes, you'll get to this. Um, Proverbs, one, sorry, from 127. Proverbs 27. There's no 127 in Proverbs. It says that unless the Lord builds the house, its laborers build, or its builders labor in vain. Right? Unless he's the one who does it, you can build all day long and nothing going to happen. The Psalms talk about that God provides food for the hungry. And Jesus, at the very lips of Jesus, he says that God is the one who provides, who feeds sparrows, who clothes lilies, and who gives to some a lot of resources and to others a few. What the teacher is trying to communicate here is that being content is a better option than striving for satisfaction or safety from money. It's a better option for us. Duh. Right? If God's the one that gives it, then look, it's, it's just a better option to just work to be content. But there's the rest of verse 19. He says that even that is a gift. And that this gift is basically a distraction from reality. He says that in verse 20. In other words, the teacher, once again, we can hear things like that and we're like, ah, the godly option, contentment. But what he's saying is is purely secular here. He's saying the best you can hope for is contentment. If you've got money, the best you can hope for is contentment. And even then, the only real point of it is to just distract you from the reality that it's all going to go away when you die. You can't take it with you anyway. So the best you can hope for if God's really kind to you is that you can distract yourself and just keep your heart busy with all of your pleasures. You don't think about it. It's not something you can even accomplish. Okay? Now let me, I want to make sure we're clear on this before we move on. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who calls himself the teacher, right? He leaves us in a place that has very little hope in this passage. We shouldn't be surprised at that. I mean, we can get a little surprised, but we, we forget that when someone would sit down to read this, they wouldn't be taking nine or ten months to go through this book. They'd be reading it on one sitting. The hope comes at the end of this book, not in the middle. Okay, we're in the middle. Um, but the teacher is, what he's doing is he's, making, he's placing us in a place without hope. Rich or poor, the issue is the same. We want money to satisfy us. We want it to keep us safe. We want it to distract us from the realities of life, but it can't. It can never satisfy us because we can never seem to get enough. It can't keep us safe because we can't buy off death. And it can't distract us because even the ability to be content is an elusive gift that comes from God instead of something in our control. And so after studying the notion of the love of money in the scriptures, uh, the German scholar, uh, whose name is, is Gunther Finkenrath, I don't, don't, that's not important. Important with what he said, okay? He says it like this. The love of money erects a selfish dividing wall against God and our neighbors. It drives the man who is possessed by it into utter isolation. This striving after wealth is the germ or the seed of total alienation from God. It's a sign of something deeper. Okay? Which leads us to talk about grace and gifts first by looking at replacing and not removing. Because what we haven't talked about yet, well, we've, what we've talked about so far is just the, fact, the facts of the matter. What we haven't talked about is the why, right? 
Why is it that we all seem to struggle wanting money to satisfy us, to keep us safe and distract us? More importantly, perhaps, than that question is, why can't it? The reason is bound up in who we are and who we were created to be. Because the Bible tells us that we were created for God. Okay? We were created to be in a dependent relationship with Him, to ascribe to Him that place of ultimacy in our lives that the Bible calls worship. Okay? I know many of us think worship has to do with singing. Worship means to, to ascribe worth to something, and not just any worth, but ultimate worth. We all worship something. We all ascribe ultimate worth to something. And we were called, we were made to, to ascribe it to Him, to find our provision in Him. The problem is that we turned away from Him. We betrayed Him. All of us have. That, that, there's no exception to that rule. We've all betrayed Him. It began in a garden, but we have continued in that ever since. We are born alienated from God, born in rebellion against Him, born broken. We betray God day by day because we were born to be, we were born as betrayers of God. You with me? In other words, we are stuck now in slavery to seeking our satisfaction, our safety, and our ultimacy in everything but God. Whatever direction He is in, we are convinced we need to go the other way. Now that posture has consequences, right? Listen, that shouldn't surprise us. You can't betray a person and there not be consequences to it. The Bible talks about God's anger for sin. And friends, that... That's not anger for, for like someone whose rules have been broken. That is the anger of a gracious and kind king who has been uh, betrayed, rebelled against. It is the anger of a perfectly loving spouse who has been cheated on. That's good and right anger. You know what I'm saying? So follow me if you can. The Bible says that we were made to make something ultimate, specifically to make God ultimate in our hearts. But since we've turned away from him, we make anything but him ultimate. The problem is that those things aren't ultimate. They aren't. He is. They can't do what we want. They can't hold the weight of our hopes. But realizing this is not enough. Right? You can't think to yourself, yeah, okay, money can't do it. So money's in this little place in my heart. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to pull money off. Okay? I'm just going to remove that. We were made to make something ultimate. You can't simply say, I'm just going to take money off that pedestal. You can't simply give up greed. You can't simply give up worshiping something false. You were made to worship. You have to replace money with something else. You and I were made for God, friends, which means if we were to find satisfaction, if we were to find safety, if we were to find something to hold our hopes, it will need to be Him. But the problem is we betrayed Him. The good news, the entire reason this church exists, in fact, is because God wasn't okay with that. And so in Jesus, God took on flesh and did a couple of very important things. First, he lived a life before God and others that we couldn't because we're broken. He was perfectly faithful to God, perfectly loving towards others. He lived the life we couldn't, but he also bore our betrayal. All of that anger that was stored up, all of that anger that came from our betrayal of God, God himself bore it in Jesus. That is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is determining to bear the guilt of your betrayer instead of making them do it. And that's what God did in Jesus. He did this so that we could return to, 
to the very one that we were made for. And so returning to him is both the easiest thing ever and the most difficult. It is easy because quite, quite clearly, you and I do nothing. We do nothing. It isn't a path to follow. It's not a morality to accomplish or an amount of service to store up. It is a gift to be received through faith. But it is the most difficult thing because to put Jesus in that place of ultimacy in your life, in your heart, will mean removing those other things. It will mean taking those things off. It will mean removing money and trusting him to satisfy you. Trusting him to keep you safe. Literally, to save you, both from the state the teacher describes here and the consequences of your sin. You've got to be able to trust in Jesus instead of your bankroll. Instead of your 401k and instead of your ability to hustle. You've got to trust in Christ because those things cannot satisfy you. They cannot keep you safe. The things you long for can only be found in Jesus. Okay? But this text also raises an interesting point. Because if we've turned from greed, what's our life going to look like? Now, in our culture, the opposite of spending is saving, right? So when we think of greed, we think of spending a lot. We're like, okay, you're right, Rick. I'm going to put money in the bank. But the problem is our teacher went at both those things. He says that greed can be underlying both. So the Bible talks about spending, certainly. It's, it doesn't demonize that, right? We have to live. And it also talks about saving, and it certainly doesn't demonize that. But the opposite of greed isn't these things. The opposite of greed is giving. It's giving. Now listen, Jesus told his disciples to be on guard against the love of money. In other words, to be on guard against greed. And that is an utterly unique statement. I don't know if you recognize this. Jesus talked a lot about a lot of different things, a lot of different problems in our lives. That is the only one that he ever said, be on guard against this. He never said, be on guard against adultery. Be on guard against, you know, uh, lying. He said, be on guard against greed. And if that was true in his culture, needed in his culture, how much more so in ours, which has taken the love of money and called it good. None of us believe we are greedy, and yet nearly all of us get anxious about money. Nearly all of us want more of it or believe that our responsible use of it will keep us safe. And so if we are going to truly repent of our greed, it will be by both deepening our belief that only Jesus can satisfy us and keep us safe, and it will also be enacting that, listen to me, it's going to be enacting that belief putting it into practice through consistent, intentional, and sacrificial generosity. Now, some of you are like, here it comes. I knew it was coming. Preacher's going to start telling me to give. Here it comes. He's about to ask for my money. All right, now listen. Listen to me clear before you check out, all right? I'm not saying don't check out. I'm saying listen first. Okay? If you aren't a Christian here this morning, and not everyone is, okay? Not everyone in here is. I need you to hear something very clearly. I believe that you and I, both of us, we're made for generosity, right? God is a generous God. You and I were made in his image. We were made for generosity. However, if you think generosity is going to give you brownie points before God, you are dead wrong. He outgives you every day of the week, twice on Sunday. Okay? Trust in Jesus, and then let's have the generosity talk. Okay? So I, you can listen in, but what I'm about to say is for other folks, okay? It's for the Christians in the room. 
If you are a Christian, I need you to listen close. We proclaim our belief that money cannot satisfy us or save us, not just in this, not, not just in word, but also in deed. Okay? Christian faith is not simply about saying the right things or asserting the right things up here. It's about enacting those in, in deed. In other words, we give our money away. Now, certainly some of that is to go to the church, right? I think the scriptures are clear on a baseline of that. You can look at Malachi 3 if you want to later. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, but generosity isn't to stop there. Okay? That is the Bible's starting point. And we think we're doing really well when we get there, right? And Malachi 3 talks about like th- this idea of this, a tithe, a 10%. We're like, whew, that's a lot. That's, that's great. That is the Bible's starting point. In biblical terms, in other words, that is what we owe God, not what we're giving in generosity. He gives us everything. He asks for this much back. Okay, I got that. And then he says, oh yeah, and, and be generous as I'm generous. Now, I don't say this to shame anyone, but I need us to open our eyes. Okay? If we are to be a generous people, we will need to make choices. Choices on where we live. Listen to me. Choices on where we live on how large our lifestyle is, on how many things that we call needs but are really luxuries that we partake of. If you don't have margins in your budget to give money to causes, anywhere from missionaries to community development and care for the poor to caring for orphans and the modern-day widow, if you don't know who that is, my my definition of that would be like um, single and teen moms. Okay? then I dare say it is time for you to make some. For some of us, that's going to mean hard decisions, right? Downsizing decisions. Admitting that we have been greedy. But friends, that's what repentance looks like. Don't fall into the trap of self-justification for your actions that says, well, look, what's done is done. When I get a little more, I can be a little generous. Okay? The the trap of saying, I've made my decisions, things can't change now. Yes, they can. It's going to be hard, but they can change. Okay? Now listen to me. I can't say this enough. We do not do this to get God's favor. We do not give our money away hoping that if we reach a quota, God says, well done, good and faithful servant, come on in. Okay? Nor do we do this, and I cannot say this strongly enough, nor do we do this out of some false teaching that says, if you give, you will get more. If you give your, sow your financial seed, you'll get a little more. That is a lie from the pit of hell used to manipulate people to make men who stand in this position rich. It is awful. There is nothing godly about it. Okay? We do this instead out of the conviction that if Jesus has given us everything, then money can't give us anything. Thank you. We are far too Presbyterian in this place. All right, now listen. If you don't believe that yet, okay? If you do not believe that yet, I have no problem telling you, try your best with your money. Try it. Try it. See how far it'll take you. 
see how far it'll take you because I know it will not work because the only shoulders strong enough to carry your hopes are the ones that bore the cross for you up the hill at Golgotha. He is the only one that can carry your longings and your hopes. The only one that can restore you to what you were made for, a right relationship with your Father in heaven. Let's pray.